Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up with a new hypothesis here this evening, hypothesis 27. And uh, this is, if you remember, we've been talking about uh, it being connected to, to 26 in the sense that uh, we had been discussing how they would scrutinize those who were seeking to enter into the monastery and how deeply they would test them. Uh, and this uh, hypothesis uh, shifts the focus a little bit uh, and softens it in the sense that those who are put in that responsibility, in that position of responsibility, are also to be careful to uh, let the spirit uh, guide them and guide others as as, it, as he wills uh, into the monastery, that they aren't too quickly dismiss those who might not seem to be uh, fit for the monastery on the surface, or those who have uh, a past history that is a little bit rough, or for those who are a little bit older, uh, that no one is to be dismissed out of hand, that an individual is to be tested, uh, certainly, uh, but not uh, dismissed easily, you know, especially if the, it's seems clear from the beginning that they are being called by God to this way of life. And so again, we're picking up with hypothesis 27 on page 229 of the text, for those who just joined. From Palladius. Once upon a time, there was a young man called Macarius, who was almost 18 years old. While playing with his peers, he accidentally committed murder. Out of fear, he fled to the desert. He was so overcome by fear of God and men that he remained without shelter for three whole years in the desert, without feeling any of the hardships of the desert. In that region where he was staying, it almost never rained. After his three years of testing had passed, he built a cell in this fearful desert. He lived in this cell for another 25 years and was counted worthy of receiving the gift of finding happiness in his solitude and of not being afraid of the demons. I stayed with him for a long time and learned his life from him, as well as the reason for his withdrawal from the world. One day I asked him to tell me what he thought about the sin of murder which he had committed. He replied to me, I am so far from grieving about it that, on the contrary, I take delight in the reason for the murder, because this involuntary murder of mine became the cause of my salvation. He justified this thought of his with a testimony from Holy Scripture. He referred me to the case of Moses. If he had not fled from fear, he told me, on account of the murder of the Egyptian, and had not sought refuge in the land of Midian, coming as far as Mount Sinai, he would not have been deemed worthy of seeing God, of enjoying the multitude of God's gifts, and with the illumination of the Holy Spirit of writing the divinely inspired scriptures. From this incident is clear that it, it sometimes happens that a man comes to what is good, even though he had not originally intended to do so, and yet makes great progress in it. So God can great, bring great good even out of evil action, if it brings a person to repentance, to a conversion of life. And this is what we see in the young Marcarius, that he 
accidentally uh, kills someone and in his grief, he withdraws and in his fear withdraws to the desert uh, to embrace a life of penance and uh, extreme penance, uh, certainly living without shelter for three years in the midst of the desert and its heat, and then for another 25 years, uh, embracing this life of deep prayer and solitude and repentance uh, that had bore great fruit in his life. And so it's a nice way, I, I think, for us to start out this hypothesis uh, of, of acknowledging that, that God uh, can make good things work, work for the good of those, as we hear, who love him or who trust in him. And so even though Macarius had cremate, created, uh, I'm sorry, committed a grave act, that God was able to work uh, through his deep sorrow and compunction to bring about this extraordinary uh, conversion of life. And so in many ways, I think this should give us great hope. I think often the things from our past can be paralyzing to us, uh, perhaps not murder, but there are often many things within our life uh, that, that might not prevent us from pursuing a certain vocation, but might hang over our heads in the sense that it makes us hesitant about entering into the relationship with God deeply or pursuing the life of holiness. Uh, or of trusting that God does love us and does desire to draw us closer to him. Uh, and so even if we and or others are, are living their life, a faith life fully on the surface, there can be something that weighs heavy upon the mind and the heart. And uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to take hold of that and allow it to lead us to God. And this is why I've always loved the father's description of compunction, which we've often talked about, this joy, sorrowful joy, that the, the sorrow over the sin, the mourning over the sin, uh, is something that is ultimately to give way to joy as it brings us back to God, turns us back to him. And uh, this is the extraordinary thing uh, that we have in our Christian faith, that God is able to make use of our sin uh, to transform our lives and even to transform the lives of others. As we hear in the story of Moses that is told uh, as part of this story, uh, but also in Macarius's life as well. I'm not sure which Macarius he's speaking of, if it's Macarius the Great or, or not, but Macarius the Great was one of the, the great elders, certainly of the desert. So any thoughts on, on this first little story? Uh, Carol Nypaper wrote, I thought of that also of uh, uh, Anthony. Was it Anthony? Father in, that, in the movie, The, the Island? Uh, except that he didn't kill the captain in the island. Yes, that's true. It's a, a great movie if you haven't seen it. It's called uh, Ostrov and uh or which is translated the island and similarly it's about uh, a monk uh it was a young man who was on a, a a barge during the war and it's uh boarded by nazis and they force him to shoot the captain and he thinks he's killed him and he falls overboard and uh, uh and then the the ship explodes and he washes up on shore near this monastery and they take him in. 
and he becomes a monk there. And uh, but not just a monk, one who has these extraordinary uh, abilities that God makes use of him in these extraordinary ways, uh, both in the lives of the monks, but also in those who come to seek counsel uh, from him at the monastery. So one of those rare films uh, that really captures the, the spiritual life well. In particular, I think the spirituality of the East is captured very well in that movie. Carol. Um, I had two thoughts. One is of the Exalta. And so it's not exactly, it's not an, an exact comparison to the story here, but just that, um, oh, happy fault, oh, necessary sin of Adam, which gained for us so great a redeemer, just speaking to the way in which God's providence works out of the greatest evil. And then also um, the verse from Luke, where he's referring to Mary Magdalene, and basically saying that she, um, of whom much is forgiven, loves much. And drawing that comparison um, between the degree to which she has sinned and been forgiven and um, the, measure which, the measure with which she then loves. That's right. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the stories of the saints throughout the centuries are replete with these images of those who had lived gravely sinful lives. And yet God, through his grace, works in their lives to bring them to repentance and to use them as uh, uh, instruments that bring about the conversion of many others. St. Paul, too, is a great example of this persecutor of the church who then becomes the, the great evangelist uh, to the Gentiles. And um, so it's, these kinds of stories are important for us, again, because I think when we see ourselves in our poverty, one of the things that the evil one can do is to pull us down into despondency. And I think what we see in Macarius, you know, certainly he was overcome by fear and dread over what he had committed, uh, but it led him to repentance, a penitential lifestyle. And within that is kind of hope in God, even though uh, one is overcome by the guilt or shame of one's sin. He, he takes upon himself the life of penance. And uh, this opens him up to the action of God's grace in his life. And, uh, you know, oftentimes we can turn away from God, I think, when we feel the burden and the weight of our, our past sin. I've always loved what you had mentioned there, the exalted that's sung at the Easter Vigil in the Latin rite. It is quite striking. Oh, oh happy fault, oh, necessary sin of Adam that gained for us such a savior. It's a, you know, it's a, a beautiful way of looking at things that, uh, that our sin wasn't an obstacle to God's mercy. In fact, uh, we the mercy that is uh, made manifest through our sin. And when we think of the cross in particular, uh, that it becomes the, the means through which God manifests the, the depth of his desire for us. You know, think of Christ's words, you know, that I've come to set fire on the earth and how I wish it were, were blazing already. Uh, that to let loose, as it were, the, 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 the fire of the, of the love of the spirit upon the wood of the cross. And uh, it's through something, this image, uh, this instrument of torture, of execution, 
becomes for us you know, a sign not only of the of the the weight of the the world's sin, but also of the depth of God's love and mercy. And we never want to lose sight of that. Okay, why don't we move on to Saint Ephraim the Syrian? If a brother comes to the Cenobium from some necessity and not from an original desire to become a monk, let him watch himself, lest the enemy overwhelm him with thoughts which may, at first sight, appear rational. For the evil one will put different thoughts in his mind, saying, You now, why do you wish to toil for the virtues and humble yourself, since there is no recompense for you? Perhaps you did not become a monk from your own choice. If such and such had not happened to you, and you had not come to be a monk from necessity, you would never have wanted it of yourself. Give up your desire henceforth to toil in vain, since God does not owe you any favor on account of it. So the evil one will play upon these, these doubts that we can carry within our minds and our hearts about the, the call to holiness in general, but the call to a specific vocation like this. What makes you think that God would desire that you would embrace this life of a monk. And, uh, and if the evil one knows that, you know, it was out of necessity or out of even a sense of shame that one moves towards that life, uh, he can use it in this way to place doubt within the heart. You know, certainly shame might not be the highest motivation for, for pursuing the monastic life. But it's something that, that God could potentially use and that could eventually give way to trust in God and ultimately a greater desire for God. And, you know, we all make our, our mistakes or we can go to extremes even in the spiritual life. And it's hard, you know, for us to see from our perspective what God might be using, even in terms of our mistaken thinking and behavior that certain uh, ascetical practices, maybe we uh, go too far or we're extreme or we repress parts, suppress parts of our, you know, personality, you know, we're too harsh on ourselves in, in the sense of not really thinking clearly about what we're doing. But even in this, God can make use of it and continue to draw us along a path to greater freedom in him and, and greater conversion of life. And th this is also why we wouldn't want to judge another in, in terms of uh, you know, where they are in their particular vocation and how they were responding, the way they were responding, the nature of their piety, you know, that God can draw people to himself on all these different paths. And we have to be careful uh, to, to let him do that. And this is ultimately where this hypothesis is taking us, that the spirit will guide people along paths that uh, we, we cannot discern for ourselves or we would not uh, be able to imagine. And so that we cannot make ourselves uh, the discerner of another person's vocation uh, in this easy kind of way either in telling them you have a vocation, so go there, or obviously you don't have a vocation, you're too old or your past would suggest otherwise. 
The devil inspires these and other similar thoughts in the mind of the brother, desiring to fling him into despair. And if the brother is not vigilant and does not stand up against him resolutely by pondering the beneficence of God with the power of faith, he lets himself fall into despair because his mind is darkened and he begins to pass his life in negligence and great indifference without the fear of God. And in this way, he ends up in complete perdition. So we want to be careful ourselves and certainly in our aid and strengthening of others to guard them against falling into this kind of despair, knowing the deceits of the evil one, that he will play upon our vulnerabilities and on our doubts and seek to make use of them. He must therefore give no credence to the enemy when he puts such thoughts into his mind, but should rather labor more intensely in the practice of the virtues, remembering the benefits of the Lord and remembering to say to himself, my soul, how many were vouchsafed to attain to such a way of life through fasting and almsgiving, while although I have passed the whole time of my life in negligence, God has yet had mercy on me, and through his goodness, I've achieved a kind of life that is humble and without distractions. Indeed, the Lord, in his love for mankind, has not regarded my many and countless sins. Let us, therefore, my soul, hasten to perform deeds worthy of repentance, lest we receive twofold punishment. On the one hand, because we have disdained the grace of God, and on the other hand, because we have not kept our promise. So, you know, one in the struggle has to keep focus upon the grace of God, that God is capable of bringing about the, the transformation in one's life, uh, no matter what one's past has been. And in our response, when we find ourselves afflicted by doubts, uh, that make us question our particular path in life, that we would labor even more intensely uh, in the spiritual disciplines in order that we might keep our focus upon God more fully, that we would open ourselves more radically to the grace of God precisely at the time when we feel ourselves being overcome by darkness. It's not an easy thing to do. You know, it does require a kind of perseverance and endurance along that path and not giving ourselves over to those kinds of thoughts until we're able to be brought out the other side of the struggle. Okay. I shall tell you a parable that relates to this, my beloved, so that you might have greater eagerness and your mind may not be hesitant. Once upon a time there lived in a certain country a rich man this rich man purchased property beyond a river, going away immediately thereafter. Before he departed, he summoned his slaves to him and apportioned his property to each. He said to them, go, let each man receive his portion and let him work on it until I return and see each man's work. Some of them, with a sense of gratitude and out of love for their master, did not disobey his command but went across the river and did their work. Others, however, being disobedient and rude, 
answered their master insolently, we will not obey your call and we will not cross the river and weary ourselves by working on your property. In spite of this, the master was not angry with those slaves, but ordered the servants in his house to prepare a banquet. After he had made the disobedient slaves drunk, he commanded other of his servants to pick them up, carry them over the river, and leave each man in the portion which had been allotted to him. The servants did as they had been commanded and carried the slaves to their portions. After this had taken place, one of these slaves came to from his inebriation. On seeing that he was on the other side of the river, on the land that his master had given him, he was startled and said to himself, since my master loved me so much and was not angry with me when I disobeyed his order, but endured me with long suffering, carried me over with this great over this great and rapid river as in a dream, without my exerting any effort, and placed me on my portion. I will henceforth weary myself in working conscientiously on his property, always keeping in mind his forbearance, his goodness, and the kindness he showed me. In fact, that slave began to work so diligently that he caught up with those who had started before him. Later, the second slave sobered up, and as soon as he saw that he was on his master's property across the river, he said to himself, since he was idle and wicked, so he carried me across this great and rapid river as in a dream, but I will leave his land untilled and dry, and I will see what he intends to do about it. He then fell asleep again. But because he slept so much, the thorns and the weeds grew very high, completely covering him. After a long time, the master of the slaves went to inspect each man's work. When he saw the work of those who had begun first, he blessed them. Likewise, when he came to the slave whom he himself had carried across the river, as in a dream, he saw his good work for himself, and he was delighted with him and blessed him. Then he came to the lazy slave to see his work, but found him asleep and completely covered with thorns. He therefore called him and spoke threateningly to him, you wicked and idle slave, why did you leave my land dry? Or perhaps you were unaware that I carried you over the river as in a dream and placed you in the portion of my property which I allotted to you without bearing any grudge against you for your previous disobedience. Should you not have imitated your fellow slave whom I carried across the river in the same way? The wicked slave remained speechless, finding no argument by which to justify himself. Then the master rendered justice to all of his servants, to each according to his deeds. Very reminiscent, isn't it, of some of the stories, the parables within the scriptures, the, you know, those who are entrusted with certain talents, you know, a certain amount of money to be invested and some invest well, bullishly, and others bury it in the ground. And so this has sort of the same tone to it. He continues, learn now the meaning of the parable. The rich man is Christ. The property is faith. The drunkenness represents the different circumstances of life. The turbulent river represents the wealth and the deceptive happiness of the present life. 
and the eager slaves symbolize those who, on account of love for God, have renounced life in the world. That slave who came to from inebriation symbolizes the pleasure-loving man who, from some circumstance of life, comes to monastic life and does as God wills. The lazy slave symbolizes the man who became a monk from circumstances of life and from some necessity, but immediately neglected the grace of the Lord and his salvation. Aside from these things, think of Saul when he took letters from the high priest and journeyed to Damascus in order to bind those who believed in Christ. But he who went forth to persecute the faith of Christ proved to be a herald of this faith. For the mercies of the Lord are rich for all who call on him in sincerity. So, again, you know, very reminiscent of the parables in the scriptures, uh, but also beautiful that despite our, our sin, and even despite uh, at times our unwillingness to heed the call of God, that there is this mercy that God is willing to pick us up and bring us to where we need to be, uh, even when we resist him. And, uh, and yet we are still, as the, the parable tells us, uh, responsible for how we respond to this great grace in our life. Uh, either we take hold of it or acknowledge at some point our uh, disobedience and turn to the Lord more fully, or we reject that grace and move away away from it, uh, so that it does not come to fruition. Um, you know, our the gospel here in the, the Byzantine uh, right this past weekend was uh, the the sower of the seeds, and you know the thing that sort of struck me in in reading it was that seventy five percent of the time that the seed does not bear fruit, which is sort of a sobering thought that uh, despite the efforts of the Lord and the free freedom, free the way that he freely bestows his grace upon us, often there are things that rise up to prevent it from bearing fruit. You know, whether it's thorns or the birds come and take it away or falls on rocky ground, all of these things that prevent us from embracing it. And here we, you know, discover in this story that it's lack of gratitude uh, for, for the gift of God that is most devastating. Uh, a couple of comments here. Rachel, like becoming drunk with consolations, being suddenly overcome by love, right? You know, that, you know, when we see the grace of God and the mercy of God, that uh, often this is something that seems like a dream. And I, I imagine uh, that so many of those that Christ encountered in his ministry, you know, the woman caught in adultery, Matthew, the tax collector, uh, you know, so, so many of these individuals uh, encountering the face of love and mercy must have thought that it was too good to be true. And there were certainly plenty of people that were willing to agree with them and uh, scorned Christ for doing this, that he was able to lift them out of a life 
that they were deeply immersed in, and no matter how deeply immersed they were within it. Anthony writes, this love born of gratitude seems to me a lot better motivation to, to serve God than another alternative I heard, that the better you serve God, the higher the place in heaven you get. Right, that uh, the, you know, certainly gratitude um, for what God has given. And I've, I've often felt this, that love is the more powerful motivator. You know, certainly more powerful than the desire for reward, but more powerful than fear. And uh, we've talked about this before, but it's so prominent that fear drives so much of what we do in this life. And fear and anxiety about what might happen to us, fear of failure, fear of punishment. And, uh, and certainly this can be true within the life of faith as well. Uh, rather than seeking to foster this love of God that comes from seeing the, the depth of his mercy and compassion. And, uh, you know, sometimes we feel that we have to be driven by the rod rather than uh, drawn along, pulled along by uh, the love that we see in God. Lee Graham writes, the riches and pleasures of this world distract us from working in the fields of God. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few, right? Yeah, that there are often uh, so many things that draw us away from really what God offers to us. And, you know, they, they hold out this temporary pleasure that can be so appealing to the human heart and our sensibilities that it blinds us to the real treasure that, that God is offering us. And so we hear Christ, even in the gospel, you know, speaking of this, you know, that the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field uh, that if we knew what it was, we would go sell everything that we had in order to purchase that field, in order to gain the treasure. And, and yet, so often we, we treat what is offered to us uh, in a perfunctory way, you know, that we sort of take hold of it, but not real, really, uh, to the point that it shapes our life and transforms it. Eric. I um, think about my life and the Lord's uh, 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 generosity to me and how much he's given me and how much he's uh, forgiven me. And you know, sometimes I have to ask myself, why me of all, of all people? Why, why did he choose to be so um, um, magnanimous and uh, generous uh, to to, to me and it, it kind of it kind of get it makes me um, think about uh, predestination as some people believe it uh, you know, did he choose me out of uh, out of other people or did or 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 you know how does that work but um, uh, in any case it, it makes me very humble when I think about how um, generous the Lord has been to me despite my infidelities, uh, despite my um, um, without sinning without number and and, uh, and uh, that 
that sort of thing. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Right. You know, it is a humbling thing. I think when we look back at our life and we see the things that God has done for us, the mercy that he's shown us or that he's drawn us along a path that is surprising, you know, that in his providence, he sees something for us in life and a path that we would not have taken simply in accord with our own reason or sensibilities, our own judgment. And uh, I think the response to this is that we have to simply allow ourselves to be humbled by it and to be grateful for it, uh, you know, rather than, you know, trying to, to reason our way through it. And uh, because I think when we, we find ourselves doing that, we lose sight of God. And I think what he wants us to do is simply see his love. And uh, my, my mind always goes back to the story of the prodigal son. And, uh, you know, when we look at the response of the father there, and even when the son sort of realizes what he could get by going back to his father's house, begins to rehearse his little speech. He'll go back to his father and say to him, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Accept me as one of your servants. And uh, But as soon as his father sees him, he runs out and embraces him without his being able to finish the little speech and clothes him and begins the, the great feast uh, because the son that was lost has been found. And uh, we often, you know, people in, or commentators in recent times have said that we've the, misnamed that parable the, as the prodigal son, when it should really be about the loving father. That Because in, in both with both sons, there's a breakdown there. The one son becomes very angry uh, that he didn't realize, you know, that he had always received his father's love, is resentful when his brother returns. And, uh, and so neither son really sees the, the, fa the father's love and goodness, uh, that he, he loves them both completely and uh, embraces them both completely and offers them everything. And I think that's the, the deeper uh, message, certainly of the parable, uh, but of the gospels as a whole, that God out of his mercy and compassion offers us everything. He's thrown everything in uh, on our behalf. You remember the image of the old woman who throws in her last coppers in, in the temple for the upkeep of the temple? Uh, you know, her last remaining coins she she gives, she throws everything in. And this takes hold of Christ. You know, he jumps up and sort of says, well, there, you know, behold the love of the kingdom. This is what God has done. He's thrown in everything that he has, the perfect love of his son for us. And this should fill our minds and our hearts with gratitude. And ultimately, it is that gratitude that should draw us forward in the spiritual life and in the ascetical life. You know, even there, I think we, we focus too much upon our sin or too much upon 
developing a discipline rather than allowing the love of God to draw us forward to embrace those particular practices in order that they might free us or draw us closer to him. And uh, we have this tendency to always turn things back on ourselves and sometimes to the, the point of losing sight of him altogether, losing sight of that love. We become like that prodigal son and we might recognize what we've done and embrace these things as a way of getting back to him, not realizing his desire and the depth of his desire for us and the depth of his joy uh, when we return to him. That, you know, striking, there's two striking sayings uh, that Christ uh, has in the gospel. One says that all of heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner. And the other is all the angels of heaven rejoice over one repentant sinner. That our turning toward God brings joy to all of heaven. And I don't think that's most people's perception of heaven and of God, uh, that he's not looking to crush us, but uh, is waiting for us and longing for us, even for the smallest movement of the mind and the heart towards him. And often I think we project upon him the image of, of the harsh judge. And uh, again, you know, I don't think this is the thing that motivates the human heart as much. You know, we, I know we hear in the scripture that fear, you know, is the beginning of wisdom. And, uh, but it's the beginning, you know, it might alter our path, but it's not the, the perfection of it and it's not the most powerful thing love is to give or this fear is to to give way to love ultimately anthony writes saint john of damascus says something like penance is turning from what is unnatural to what is created to be natural we focus a lot on numbers quantity rules of life which are good but i prefer the franciscan happiness and freedom as a model of repentance the glory of God is man fully alive, says Irenaeus, I think. Right. You know, I think uh, there is this kind of negativity that we that can sort of alter our language when speaking about the faith and the spiritual life. And <clears throat> I even liked how John Paul, you know, says sin is its own punishment that it weighs down, it burdens a person, it brings harm to them. And, uh, you know, it shifts the focus a, a, a little bit for us, uh, you know, in terms of how we look at things, that our greatest joy is to be found in God and happiness in him. And so often the penitential life or the life of prayer is presented as something that is harsh and punitive rather than something that draws us back toward God. And, you know, to be honest, we find it within the writings of the saints and we find it within the writings of the Desert Fathers too, that sometimes there can be a kind of harshness that can slip into that language. And uh, this is why reading things in their context 
I think is so important for us. And why, why I, I love that Ricatinos, that here we have two hypotheses that are tied together, that there is this deep scrutiny of what's going on in a person's mind and heart, but then there is this understanding of the action of God's grace and love in its person's life that is far more important to, to consider in, in the action of discernment. And in our day-to-day -day life, we have to understand that as well. We do not see everything that there is to see about ourselves or the action of God's grace in our life. And, you know, the emphasis on our point, part, the weight that we give should be to the grace and the mercy of God and his desire to bring us to salvation. Eric, did you have another thought or comment? Oh, um, no, I'll lower my hand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So... <clears throat> from the Gerontocon. A young man who wished to renounce the world fled to the desert. On the way, he saw a tower, actually a cell which had been built as a tower. He then said to himself, whomsoever I find in this tower, I will serve until I die. As soon as he reached it, he knocked and an elder came to the entrance. What do you want? The elder asked him. Out of a vow, I have come to be a monk. The elder took him inside the tower. After entertaining him and letting him rest, he asked him again, Do you not have anywhere to live? No, replied the young man. I want to live here. When the elder heard this, he cut him off. This elder had fallen into fornication and had a woman with him in his cell. After a short while, he said to the young man, if you want to be helped, my brother, go to the monastery, because I have a woman inside here. The young man responded, whether you have a concubine or a sister, I do not know. In any case, I came to serve you until I die. After some time had passed, the brother continued to serve them in all things without judging them in any way. The elder and his concubine said to each other, is the burden of our sin not enough for us without our giving account for this man's soul as well? Let us flee from here then and leave the cell to him. When they had taken whatever they could from among their belongings, they said to the brother, we are going away to fulfill a vow. Look after the cell for us. But scarcely had they departed when the young man immediately realized their intention, that is not to return, and ran after them. When they saw him, they were agitated and said to him, how long are you going to be our condemnation? You have the cell at your disposal. Stay there and take care of yourself. I did not come for the cell, answered the young man. I came here to serve you as a slave. As soon as they heard this reply, the elder said, the elder and his concubine perceived that their consciences were censuring them. And they decided to repent before God. From that very moment, the woman withdrew to a convent while the elder returned to his cell. In such a way were the two of them saved by the brother's patience. Do you see that the elder who thought correctly was not ignorant of the law of the spirit, even though he had fallen into the sin of fornication? 
For this reason, when the brother came to his cell, he did not completely reject him, although he did not want to have another person living with him. But after rebuffing him a little, as soon as he saw that his visitor was not disposed to leave, he took him in, even against his own will, discerning that the brother was inspired by God to persist in staying. He was afraid of sinning before God, who was prompting the young man, and who said to him, said, him that cometh to me, I will not, I will in no wise cast out. Also, since the younger brother exercised patience for a long time and offered his service to him without any pretext, for this reason the elder did not dare to dismiss him, but preferred rather to abandon his own cell than to cast out him who had come and stayed by divine providence, which had also informed the elder that it would be unjust for him to make the young man leave. Let this law then be put into practice by us without any alteration. What an extraordinary story. And, you know, even as I was reading it, this, I don't know how many times I've read it over, but uh, uh, this time reading it, I began to think more of Christ coming to us, thinking of the incarnation itself, that this young man comes to them, uh, and even when he's not wanted, you know, that in the, depth, in the depth of their sin, his presence becomes a source of agitation for them and agitates their conscience. So the presence of this deep love, this fidelity, this desire to serve, even to make himself their slave, uh, agitates their, their consciences to wake them up. And uh, the one thing that saves them is this sense of hospitality, of not casting him out as one who had no place. Uh, so it allows enough room for his great fidelity and love to work on their hearts and bring about their greater, greater conversion. But the image is very Christ-like, at least from my perspective that you know this young man comes to them uh you know taking the form of a slave uh, a servant and you know even unto death that no matter what he says i'm going to stay and become the servant of who who it is that is in this in this place in this tower and in so many ways this is how christ comes to, to us, that, you know, as a slave of a servant, and he came among his, his own and was not received, and yet still pours himself out in love on our behalf in such a radical way, and far more radical than even this story, that it speaks to the heart and the conscience in the deepest way, when we look upon the cross or when we think about the Holy Eucharist, just how, you know, how God has given himself to us. Or as we come to the altar to ask ourselves, who is it that's serving us at this table? Who's doing the serving still at this table? Is something that can awaken us to the poverty of our sin and draw us out of it. You know, this, this is the nature of the love of our God. You know, 
coming to us yet unwanted, remaining with us even though unwanted and uh, pouring himself out in such a radical way even when unwanted. Anthony writes, this is a bit like The Idiot by Dostoevsky. You know, I've never had the opportunity, sadly, to, to read it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yes. As I recall, Father, uh, a very sensitive, delicate young man comes out of a sanitarium in Switzerland. He intersects the lives of, I think, a minor uh, noble or Russian civil service family. And he's so gentle and so kind. He's even kind to a prostitute or a woman maybe who has a bad reputation. And unfortunately, nobody is, as my memory is, if it's correct, nobody really appreciates this kind of love and this kind of transformation that he could possibly give to them. And unfortunately, I believe the story collapses and he goes back He's wounded, I think, because nobody really can accept this love and maybe even accuse him unjustly of something. It's, it's been a several years, but it, it's that's the book from which we get the line, beauty will save the world. Okay. Right. Yeah. And it does fit very well with the story. You know, there is this kindness and gentleness there, this unwillingness to judge, and there is a kind of, of beauty in that uh, and in the story as a whole that it pulls these two individuals out of their state in life without without harshly condemning them at all by making himself their servant extraordinary any other thoughts okay Again, from St. Ephraim the Syrian. Is that right? Are we on the last little one there? Okay, on page 234. I love this saying. Do not humiliate old men. <laughs> Which is me. Don't humiliate me. Uh, no, do not humiliate old men when they decide to come and labor in the monastic life. For the Lord did not reject those who came at the 11th hour. You do not know whether this old man may be a vessel of election. I really love this saying. And I, I found myself coming back to it over the last three or so weeks. Uh, not simply because I'm, I'm getting older, but the whole I idea, the whole notion of it that... Uh, and we've talked about this before in, in terms of particular vocation or even how sometimes people will say, you know, it's too old. I'm too old to be reading this kind of stuff in my, my life. You know, Isaac the Syrian or, you know, Cassian or Climacus, you know, I'm coming too late. And the answer to that is it's never too late that God can, you know, work these extraordinary things, make a person a vessel of election, regardless of the circumstances of their life or their age. And certainly this is, would be important for uh, someone joining a religious community, you know, and I unlikely suspect to join the monastic life could be the individual who, uh, alters the course of the life of the community altogether or transforms it from within. 
And the movie that was brought up earlier, Ostrov, the island, is what takes place. You know, this unlikely character who's held in contempt by so many of his fellow monks because of his state in life and that he, you know, he sings through his nose and he never washes his socks. And he, you know, talks to the pilgrims who come to the monastery and gives them sugar and their tea. You know, he does all these things that irritate uh, the fellow monks. And, you know, he's come by this route to them that was unusual too. And yet because of the depth of his penance that God uses him in these extraordinary ways in all sorts of people's lives. For some reason, this little paragraph stands out to me as the most important that we've read in these two hypotheses, because it tells us that you know, God's spirit can work in people's lives and make them these vessels of election by the power of his grace. And the mention earlier of St. Paul, you know, again, is this perfect example that despite, you know, raging against Christ and the church is, is chosen to be the, this vessel uh, of evangelization. And so, you know, when we look at ourselves, but also this time in which we live, uh, we have to keep our focus upon Christ and be as radically open as we can to the spirit in our life. You know, we have this tendency to, to direct our gaze outward and to evaluate what's going on in the church or to evaluate certain characters within the church or problems that the church is facing, not realizing that in an instant God can raise up you know, somebody within the church wholly unexpected that can bring about a transformation or renewal and or that he can do that with our lives as well. And so that we should not allow uh, anything to become an obstacle in our own minds and our hearts to responding as fully as we can to the grace that God is giving, giving to us in the moment that our attitude is always to be that of gratitude, to take hold of what God gives us, uh, despite the circumstances around it that might be confusing to us, chaotic, you know, or make no sense whatsoever, uh, that God can be working great things in our lives and, and through us. Anybody have any comments on the hypothesis as a whole? Nice follow-up, I think, to the the one we we just read. We still have three minutes, so I'm going to sit here for three minutes and see if anybody has any. Ambrose Little, <laughs> I can help you fill the space. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh the, the towards the end of the one before this I, it's kind of been swishing around in my head a little bit but the uh kind of the notion of you can like he said this this i think he said the law of the spirit was still with the elder mm -hmm. and that you know it's like even when you're dealing with sin that at that time you don't feel you can overcome that that doesn't mean like <laughs> You know, this, the spirit has neglected you or vice versa. Like you can't, 
make effort, you know, in other ways, you know, that don't compound, you know, that sin by being like, oh, well, you know, I'm sinning. I might as well just say, yeah, <laughs> just totally screwed. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, you know, and, the, and to at least in the things that are not that kind of a challenge for you to remain true in those, I guess is probably what I'm trying to say. I'm not sure. That's right. You know, this is a good point because I think often when we fall into sin, we feel that it negates our response to God up to that point and everything that we have been striving to embrace in the spiritual life. And that can be really disheartening and it's not true. You know, certainly uh, God, you know, grace is still active within us. And even when we have perhaps a serious fall that, uh, you know, that certainly all the things that God has revealed to us that he's done within our hearts are still there. And uh, to turn back to him uh, doesn't mean that we have to start at the beginning again, that he can draw us to himself. And even out of that fall, you know, take us to a higher place in the sense of our understanding of our need to rely upon his grace and to be humble before him and to be grateful for the, the gifts that he's given to us. And sometimes he allows that even to take place in order to draw us further along in the spiritual, spiritual life. Ren. Yeah, sorry, I'm speaking this, but I was uh, not a whole lot of time left to type. To, to type. So um, I just, I just wanted to say that not to be the negative person, but that the thing that really struck me in a sad way because of how, how true it rings is the reaction of the second servant. Um, you know, sort of like the parable of the, the prodigal son or the, uh, the untrustworthy servant who's too scared of the master to invest the money and it's just like I'm terrified I'm gonna lose it so I'll just keep it safe like I'll just bury it because I'm afraid of him right. you know those aren't exaggerations like Christ knows what he's talking about and the fathers know what they're talking about and these the other side examples ring really true and it's very sad and like very piercing I think and Maybe because it feels like maybe this is where I am in my life right now, but it's sort of amazing. This the second servant just it really struck me how um, how realistic the example was. Like you know, this big thing happened. He was carried across this river as in a dream. You know, to this land the master was going to give him, but the master still expected work. You know, and he expected him to labor. And the servant is tired. Like the servant just wants to go to sleep. And, you know, I think it's so easy to believe that if God just made this huge like gesture, then you'd be overwhelmed by amazement and gratitude. And then just like serve him faithfully forever. Like, of course, we would all be this first slave who find themselves on the other side of the river and overwhelmed by gratitude you know, behave correctly, but I find myself and I, I'm sure other people do too, where you, it feels even worse 
because you see that you've been carried across the river. Like, you know that. Like, you know that you ended up in a land, you know, completely apart. But you still, whatever it is that's going on, like, you still don't feel that compelled by gratitude to then be this faithful faithful laborer you know and what he says here just struck me so deeply where he said I'm gonna leave it untilled and I'm gonna see what he intends to do about it like it's so right like you know what God I'm freaking exhausted <laughs> and you brought me to your land it's your land you already carried me across the river you clearly don't need me to till it so I'm gonna leave it be and you show me your big plan for this place because you clearly have one and um so I just wanted to say that like the second servant just spoke so deeply to me and I don't think that's a good thing like I find it a little bit um hard to sit to think that the person in everything we've read tonight that resonates with me the most is the servant who ends up being condemned by the master but uh, but unfortunately that's just the case right now but um but it's just yeah it just strikes me the fathers just speak so truly and their examples always do i'm not really sure where your servant goes from there right. you know where do you go when you know that in your heart that's what you want to say. Yeah. It's just like, I can't, you know? Um, and then you just, you hope that maybe the master won't come and condemn you for being a lazy, lazy, miserable <laughs> servant. You ungrateful wretch. Now, you know, I think you bring up a good point because I think as we go through life and we experience our own weakness, and our own sin and our own poverty and or we suffer from certain things in life whether it's failure or mistreatment by others we can become jaded you know the the way that we view life and the world and the way that we view god uh, can be altered and we can begin to doubt his goodness and his love or we can begin to complain and uh, and we often hear this little warning in the saints about not complaining because I think it begins to alter our perception of, of, of life, of self, of God, that how things are in the moment really determine our identity and the, the path ahead for us. And it, ultimately, I think it begins to strip us from hope that we can't see through these things and hold on to the promises of God. And, you know, there is that story in, in the gospel, you know, the one who buries that talent and he tells himself, you know, that his master is hard, harsh and demanding. And so he has this sort of negative image uh, of him and uh, that keeps him from investing what was given to him. And the, I think it's very, it's probably easier to fall into that than, than we imagine, that we would feel that God is a taskmaster or that he's harsh or he asks so much for us 
you know, to be perfect in our mercy, to not resist one who's evil, to forgive our enemies. And, you know, when you've been slapped around and beaten by your enemies so many times, you begin to think, you know, okay, you know, what, what fruit is this possibly bearing in my life? You know, or why, why would a loving God ask of such things? So I think it's very easy for us to fall into this vision of life, of God, uh, of our suffering, that uh, can make it very difficult for us to have that kind of spirit of, of gratitude or to lose this sense of lo loving the master. The one thing that we know about the one who buried that talent in the ground is that he had no love for his master. You know, the other servants did. And so even though what was being asked was challenging, they were able to respond to it. And even the one who was taken over, you know, in a drunken state and awake, you know, awakens there is able to respond to it. But we can get to a certain point where we begin to lose our love for God, our trust in him. And, uh, and I think this is where, you know, being part of the church, the body of Christ, and our responsibility for others uh, is becomes very important that, you know, that we're not islands in that regard. And we can fall into this uh, state where our, the cross is sort of crushing us or crushing our neighbor. And we can't be oblivious to, to that as if it holds no import for us, that we're not responsible for their well-being and helping them to continue to move forward. You know, we, we can live our Christian life out in this kind of isolation, myself and God, me and Jesus. And, you know, but once we get on the road behind the, the, the wheel of a car and have to deal with everybody there, we become these raving lunatics. You know, I never drove, you know, my car had 30,000 miles on it and it's a 2009 and all of a sudden, you know, I've become a Byzantine priest. And I'm driving all over the place and now I have road rage, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm having to deal on a daily basis with all these nutty drivers on, on the road. And, uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but, uh, <laughs> I lost my way, but, uh, you know, our vision of things, you know, when we, we are drawn into this isolation by our sin and things can become very dark. And this is where we need somebody to help draw us, take us by the hand and draw us forward. And we need to allow ourselves to have God put us in that position and willing and willingly respond to it. Often we don't want to end, enter into other people's sorrow or their misery and uh, and embrace it with them. And you know, we resist it like Simon Cyrene, you know, in and uh, carrying the cross. You know, it can be horrifying for us, and we want to avoid it. And you know. The only reason he did it was that he's pressed, in, pressed into service. But, you know, we're, I think we're called to willingly help people because we can get into that state where it's hard for us to be grateful to God. Angela. 
Well, I know we're low over time, but you had your hand up, so we'll. Okay, yeah, just a very quick uh, reaction from me about the elder in the monastery. Um, I just saw um, the reality in that story of the temptations, um, but also the presence of angels. You know, they, they, there are creatures, uh, invisible creatures alive in the story. And it's, you know, the, these temptations um, uh, to do the wrong thing. The vicissitudes of life, um, you know, present us with a, a choir of angels in the same place. Right. And um, and I, I I could see the lovely sort of presence of angels in that story. Yeah, yeah you know that's a good point. Now, as we hear about the demons, you know, drawing people into despair, we also have the, our guardian angels, the guardian angel, and the other angels helping us along, assisting us, giving us light, and uh, you know communicating to us the, the, the will of God to draw us forward. And so, again, you know, we're not left in isolation and God doesn't leave us alone in this struggle. You know, he's not one who stands back and just watches us, always active and attentive to us individually. So, a uh, little over time, so why don't we stop there for, for the evening. Uh, great comments, as always, and w wonderful stories. This is a great hypothesis. I'm glad we got through it all together, too. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thank, Thank you, everyone. Have a